Hi, this is Tanya Ransom, creator and executive producer of Nightlight, a horror podcast featuring creepy tales written by Black writers all over the world. And today we have with us Eric Nunnally, the author of You Call This an Apocalypse. Eric, how are you? Hi, Tanya. I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. No problem. Thank you for joining us again. The last interview we had was amazing. I enjoy talking to you so much. So I'm really glad to have you back um, to talk about this story and to talk about what else you've been working on. So first of all, I love this story. It was great. I love the characters <laughs> in the story. Like the voice in the story is just so great. So I'm curious, you know, one, how you came up with the premise of this story and two, why you decided to use these characters to tell the story. Well, it takes place in the part of Boston that I grew up in. And I was really interested in all this stuff, but I never saw anything set where I was familiar with. Like, you know, stories were rarely in Boston. And if they were, they were never in Mattapan or Roxbury or the uh, southern half of Dorchester. And, and that's basically where all the Black people are. Okay. And this, you know, this, I've always had a, a, a bit of a pet peeve about how Boston is represented in media and the whole thing with the accent and all the, the uh, all the parts of town that are you know, celebrated and, you know, but you never see anything there. Um, the other thing is these two boys were, you know, just like some of the kids that I grew up with. Um, and they, you know, they, they have these very similar circumstances, but they're two very different people. And, um, and, and really that, that, was, that was the genesis of it right there. I just wanted these two, two kids who were, who were very much uh, not alike, but can recognize their shared circumstance as well as um, you know, being smart enough to know that they, they can be friends and they can cooperate. Right. So, why in particular, though, did you want to tell a story about the cooperation between them? Mm. Um, I, I think there's a, there's a through line in, uh, in uh, Black history here in the United States of, of uh, American descendants of slavery that is very cooperative for survival purposes. So there's some, some, there seem to be a number of activities that people consider, you know, fairly mundane, mundane choices. But for that community, uh, for a long time, a lot of those choices were a matter of survival. Um, whether that's, you know, getting married and having kids or trying to acquire property and wealth, it wasn't simply something of interest, it always seemed to be tinged with a certain amount of survival. And um, I also noticed over the years that whenever there was a crisis, like a, a, a national crisis, um, everything, you know, all the things that, that threw everything out of whack up to and including 9-11, um, that when I, when I lived in those neighborhoods, things really wouldn't change much. Like the, uh, when the financial crisis happened, that was uh, 2008, I believe, between like 2005 and 2010, um, people were getting you know, laid off and losing their homes and all of their savings and, and life in the neighborhood just never really changed. Uh, it's the same with the Gulf War. It's the same with 9-11. The, the day-to-day life and the interactions with people didn't really change because it was so, uh, th there's such a separation, um, particularly in Boston, such a historical separation of, of daily life um, on those particular streets that it, it's almost as if nothing had changed. So that's, that's kind of where all of this came from. So to create a, a kind of a disaster that I would be interested in writing and the reactions and the behaviors that I would hope would present differently than most other zombie stories that are, that are tossed out there. Right. 
So for the writers out there, can you give writers tips on creating full, lively characters like you did in the story? Oh, man. Um, in a sh it's much simpler in a short story, I think, uh, than in a novel. Um, so in a novel, my particular method involves quite a bit of planning. You know, there's always initial inspiration, but then I have to understand all of their background and interests and what they are doing day to day, who their relations are. So these are all things that factor in. But when it comes to a short story, you can kind of cut right to the chase and demonstrate their personalities and appearance and any shared history. And you can do a lot of that in dialogue. And I think dialogue is always the uh, sort of the most lively way to push through a short story. Um, unless you've got some, you know, like one, just the individual who's dealing with something and then you've got a lot of inner thought. But I find dialogue to be really peppy and interesting in, in um, revealing who a character is so that later on their behaviors will make sense or can be believable. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any tips on creating good dialogue? As natural as possible. Um, it's not that I've fought editors on this type of thing before, but um, there's a number of a number of instances where editors or proofreaders or beta readers will flag or try to change things in dialogue. And, I, and I'm being very particular about a lot of things because we don't speak in good English. Like even someone who speaks properly is not, uh, does not put everything in the correct order. Uh, there's a lot of interruption in how we speak. Um, and I think it's good to include all that stuff in, um, in some moderation, like, you know, I'm speaking and I'm making all these weird noises when I, when I pause to think. We don't want to put too much of that in dialogue because then it becomes distracting. Um, but I do think that um, there's some cultural touch points that I usually uh, end up stumbling across uh, when I'm doing this so that it's, it sounds like, uh, you know, it, it, for me, it should sound like a Black person. Um, when I went to the military, I, I met Black people all over the country. And that's when I, I really started to understand Black with a capital B as a culture. Um, and there's language associated with that. Uh, there's not only language, but certain spellings um, and references that can be included. So if you have, if you have that in your background um, and it can be included with your characters, like absolutely include that stuff. Don't be afraid to put things in there. Like um, I run into this all the time with, uh, with locks. Right. It's it's I've always known it to be spelled L-O-C-S. And it's an it's in direct reference to that particular hairstyle. And there's a number of different ways that that can be referenced. And I'll put them in there. And sometimes people will trip over the, uh, the spelling or not quite understand what's happening there. But thankfully, it's never been a, a weird argument or anything. I can just explain it and they go, oh, that's an aspect of that particular culture. I didn't know. Moving on. So it's, I think it's really good to include as much of that stuff as, uh, as is reasonable. Yeah, I would totally agree. So what have you had released since we last spoke? What was it? I guess a year, year and a half ago. It's been a while. Ah, um, that's a good question. Let's see. I think, I think when last we spoke, it was, um, I think lightning wears a red cape is what mm -hmm. was coming out. Yeah. Um, and since then, um, Blood for the Sun was my first book, and I got to edit it and rewrite uh, a good deal of it and re-release it uh, because there's the, there was there were some um, <laughs> disappointing uh, publisher situation when I first released it, got it released. <laughs> and so now uh, I also have the sequel, All the Dead Men in the Market. Um, and I'll be able to do the third book in the trilogy, and it's it's it, which is really great because when it first came out, it, it got some pretty good, it got pretty good reviews. A number of people enjoyed it, and a number of people would always ask me, "Hey, you're going to write a sequel?" And that was pending finding a publisher, so I did, and now that's on the way. 
Um, other things, uh, short stories in Galaxy's Edge, and um, I got one in Fire that's actually going to show up in Apex soon. I'm really proud of that. Um, and just pressing on with whatever I, ideas and, and um, opportunities I have. There's a couple of things that I did recently that I'm waiting to find out more about. Um, one's an anthology that has not been announced yet, but the other one is related to the Pixel Project, which is an uh, organization that's um, essentially against violence against women. Um, and they're doing their, they're putting together, apparently this is their first anthology. And it was an inspired, the inspiration for the anthology was Stephen Graham Jones. Um, so it's sort of a Twilight Zone-esque stories of comeuppance, essentially. Oh, that <laughs> but, sounds amazing. That's yeah, like right up my yeah, alley. Yeah. Why is, the, why is the title of this escaping me? It's um, Giving the Devil His Due. I originally tried to go, I went a little more literal with it, but the friends convinced me to, to take a, a different approach. So it's the story that I wrote in there is actually pretty difficult to write because it's, it's, so, um, it's so much more realistic. You know, it's still got some Twilight Zone-esque aspects to it, but you, you couldn't put your finger on it and say that that was supernatural or this was science fiction or anything like that. Plus, it's a tough subject matter. Yeah. Well, I think it's good sometimes to draw that line between you don't necessarily know what's supernatural and what's more practical yeah, in I think nature and leave your readers questioning that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else that we can look forward to from you? Well, therein lies a good, good question. <laughs> <laughs> I am working on a, I have a number of, not a number. I have a handful of novels that I'm trying to get around to. There's one that I'm almost done with that will be coming out from Thunderstorm Books. We don't have a date for that or anything yet, but it's it's sort of a, a coming-of-age story that's set in the early to mid-1970s. It's going to involve like Black Power Groups, COINTELPRO, uh, certain sci-fi elements that, that are going to be ambiguous. Um, but yeah, good times. <laughs> that sounds super interesting. What can we do to support you? Ah, well, um, my superhero novel, and you know, I use that term loosely because only <laughs> one of the characters wears a cape, um, is you can actually get that directly from me by going to my website, ericdunnelly.us. Um, and, uh, I have, uh, my books are on Bookshop and Amazon and a few select locations in Rhode Island as well. So that's how that's done as well as, um, especially, you know, I should say the, um, the magazines, like those always need our support, Fire, Galaxy's Edge, Apex, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because they are providing that, you know, uh, monthly or, or, uh, quarterly view into all different types of writers, including shows like this one. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us again, Eric. It was a pleasure. I would love to have you back again, obviously. So, you know, you can keep submitting stories and <laughs> you know, we'll just keep doing these <laughs> interviews and find little nuggets of wisdom a little bit at a time. <laughs> thank you Absolutely. so much. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thank you. Talk to you later. And now, our interview with Nicole Givens-Kurtz. Hi, I'm Tanya Ransom, creator and executive producer of Nightlight, a horror podcast featuring creepy tales written by Black writers from all over the world. And today, we are interviewing Nicole Givens-Kurtz, the author of Siren Song. Nicole, how are you today? I'm great. Very excited to be here. I'm really excited that you're here. We have known each other for a long time. And you haven't ever been interviewed on this show. And I was kind of astounded by that. So I'm glad that we're getting a chance to correct yeah. that today. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit about yourself as a writer? Like how long you've been writing? What else you write other than horror? Sure. I've been writing. My first professional contract was signed with uh, a now defunct um, electronic press called Digital Publishing, and it was in 1998. <laughs> oh, wow. I've been doing this for a little bit about 20 years or so. Wow, just, I didn't know you'd been yeah. writing that long. Yes, and it was a um, post-apocalyptic, handmaid's tale-ish um, story. So <laughs> it was dark. 
Oh, but yeah. it's kind of like sci-fi horror um, story, novel at the time. So yeah, 98. Wow. What was the name of it? It, it was called Brown Candidate. And if you, if you see like I, that, that publisher contracted it and then six months later it was gone. And so I had shopped it around um, the native around and found another publisher. So you may see really ancient copies of it, like on eBay or <laughs> <laughs> half.com or in random used bookstores, but there are copies that exist. They're in the wild, um, but you can't. You should totally republish it. Oh gosh. I would have to like, I'd majorly revise it, right? Because it's been 20 years and my writing has changed and improved um, so much since then. But the story concept is a little too close to, I think, a handmade Tale for me to actually put it back out there. So, oh, yeah. That's a bummer. It sounds like something that I would really enjoy reading. Um, so you write stuff other than horror. What else do you write outside of horror? I primarily write um, speculative mysteries, which are like science fiction mystery mashups and fantasy mystery mashups where there's like a, there's usually a private detective or an inspector who is investigating some sort of mystery or crime or theft um, in fantastic settings. So basically I write strong heroines in fantastic worlds with uh, marvelous mysteries. That sounds pretty awesome. Now you're also a publisher. You run Mocha Memoirs Press. Can you tell us a little bit about why you started that? What kind of stories you publish there and how that's going? So I started Mocha Memoirs Press. It's actually um, the big sister of Mocha Memoirs short story, short fiction and poetry e-zine that I started in like 2000. And um, I used to publish poetry and short stories online and we used to pay, <laughs> you know, wow. for stories. Yeah, <laughs> we did that for about... 2000 to 2000 to 2006 when I um, when I adopted my children so you get three you know boys under the age of five you no longer have time to run uh-huh. a <laughs> magazine and so um, Mocha Memoirs was started in 2010 with the idea that um, marginalized and underrepresented voices in speculative fiction that's horror fantasy science fiction just kind of weren't getting past traditional mainstream gatekeepers and so what I wanted to do was provide an outlet for other authors, myself included, who just couldn't get past that barrier for whatever reason. But I felt like those stories needed to be shared and they needed to be told. And they too need to be out there for people to consume. So I started the press with that. And that's still our mission today, to amplify marginalized voices and speculative fiction. That's what we do. Um, and that's what we, that's what, that's our main mission is we look for those stories that are from voices that aren't traditionally promoted or amplified uh in, in in traditional speculative fiction and then we publish those stories well i think that's an honorable mission i might be a little bit biased because that's a big part of my mission too but <laughs> <laughs> but i think that it's great that you're doing that do you know how many books that you've published so far uh, over the last 10 years we've published 120 books wow do you know how many authors oh over 60 60 over 60 authors that's amazing that's amazing that it's it's such a necessary thing to do I think you know a lot of people ask me why I started Nightlight and um you know anybody who has heard pretty much any of these interviews or heard me interviewed on any other podcast already knows this story but for those who don't I'll go ahead and tell it very quickly um there was a fireside fiction report that came out uh, in 2017 2018 Um, And it detailed some demographics of published authors, and it turned out two and a half-ish percent of stories were published by Black writers. Now, most of these people surveyed were American, and in America, Black people make up 13%, so obviously there is a huge, huge gap there. Um, And I'm part of a Black writing group, and we were talking about this, and you know, I asked, well, why, you know, what kind of rejections are you getting when you get a rejection, especially if it's not related to the story? You know, if, if the story is rejected because it's not structurally sound or, you know, there's something wrong with the pacing, you know, that's totally, that's totally fine. That's expected. Right. But if you're getting weird rejections, what are those weird rejections? And pretty much everyone was saying, well, I get rejections saying my story is too black or it's not black enough. And I think the fact that there are these quote unquote mainstream gatekeepers who have this arbitrary level of blackness 
that they're going for that no one knows what it is. And it's different for everybody. So you can submit one story to one place and it's too black and you submit it to another place and it's not black enough. Mm-hmm. You, you can't make anybody happy. And it's, it's really hard to break in when those gatekeepers don't understand what it's like to be a marginalized writer. And they have these ideas that when you are a marginalized writer, you're expected to write about your struggle and you can't write about things like murder mysteries, you know, (laughs) right. You know, it it makes no sense. You know, you have to fit into this little box. And I think having more editors like you who are out there reading stories for the story and not for what they expect that person to be writing about Mm -hmm. is so necessary. So I'm so glad that Mocha Memoirs Press is doing well and that you're publishing so many authors and so many books. Um, let's talk a mo- take a moment to talk about Slay, um, <laughs> your anthology of vampire stories. That was an amazing anthology. And last season, we had two stories from Slay on the podcast. Um, Desiccant still remains my favorite story out of uh, the entire anthology, but I'm curious to know how you came up with the idea of doing that anthology, how you found those authors, how you put all this together to create such a successful piece of work, because it's award nominated now, right? Well, it's a preliminary ballot for a few things, but yes. (laughs) But I think that, so uh, I... Growing up in the 90s, I'm a night, I was an 80s kid. Like I was like I graduated high school in 91. So um I became an adult during the 90s, like an early. So a lot of my reading material was, I mean, I read a lot in high school and when I was a kid, but I started reading a lot more horror. I mean, I read Stephen King and I read traditional horror, but I really loved LA Banks Vampire Huntress series. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time for me, and, and again, this is just me where I was like, oh my gosh, here are vampires that, you know, there was a vampire in Brooklyn and there's mm-hmm. Blade and there's all these, but this was grounded in like Philly, right? Mm-hmm. It was grounded in an urban setting. It was very much the, the story and her lifestyle and the things she had to do as a slayer and prophecies, all those things were so well inter, interwoven into her urban life. I loved it. And when LA Banks passed unexpectedly, I was really sad, like a lot of people were. Mm-hmm. But uh, me and a few friends on, on Facebook, like Kai Leaks, we, we would lament the loss of LA Banks. We're like, you know, we really haven't seen another author come through with that type of vampire story. And I know there are mm-hmm. other Black women writing vampire stories, but not in the manner that we could find in the manner that L.A. Banks was doing it. Yeah, And so absolutely. we were like, we really need, I was like, I wonder, it'd be great if we could have like an anthology of just Black vampire slayer stories. Yeah. And I was, I like had been pondering <laughs> it for like over a year. And then I was like, oh, I wonder if no one wants that. Vampires are overdone. They're no longer, you know, People are sick of vampires. No one's going to read that. Yeah. And then I actually asked um, a few. I asked Cherie Renee Thomas and I asked Craig and I asked a few people around to a few mm-hmm. authors. I said, would you even be willing to submit to something like this if that was to put together an anthology like this? Yeah. They were like, yeah. And I, so I went to Amazon, which is like the, you know, the, the mega house for all things books. And I was like, maybe there's already one that, that's out there and I just don't know. And so I was right. <laughs> searching on Amazon and I was like, wait, no. Um, so I thought we could do, I could do this. I run a publishing house. I know editors. I, I edit. I can, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of just came together in that way. We had a few, we had like five anchor, six anchor authors. And then I opened a, a call and read through Slush. And originally it was only supposed to be 15 stories, but there were so many good stories yeah that it swelled up to 28 (laughs) (laughs) well they're excellent stories and you know to your point about you know vampires being overdone actually you know that I wrote a review for Tor Nightfire Mm -hmm. about Slay and I opened that interview with saying that you know people are saying vampires are overdone vampires are dead you know Twilight killed them blah 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 but at the end of the day 
black vampires and vampires from the black experience has really not been done in Mm -hmm. a very long time. And especially not as an anthology by numerous authors with different perspectives themselves. And I, I hate it. I despise it when people say that something is overdone. It's, it, you know, we need to leave this behind. Zombies are tired. Vampires are tired. Because what they're really saying is that this mainstream experience that we have consumed stories through about these different monsters or different tropes, that has been overdone. But in reality, marginalized people haven't really had a chance to take a crack at those monsters or those tropes. And it creates entirely new stories with entirely new experiences that I think a lot of readers and viewers end up being robbed of because people assume that just because mainstream vampires, mainstream zombies are over, that these marginalized perspectives are also over. And that's absolutely not the truth, in my opinion. No, I agree. I think too, like what happens with, that's the, that's the danger of only having one particular viewpoint selecting stories or gatekeeping or in the writer's room. If you only have one or two similar perspectives, you miss out on the diversity of other voices and other opportunities for for really enriching and engrossing stories because you you have this singular viewpoint, which is why I advocate for diversity in writers' rooms, advocate for diversity. I mean, we talk about the the Fireside Report, and I've read that report um, too. And one of the things that I find most interesting is the pushback of, of some publications and where we're only looking for great stories. We don't care about, you know, demographics of the authors. Mm -hmm. What defines great stories for you? It's coming from your internal bias and life experience and perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so without diversity or having varied perspectives on what is identified as a quote, great story and having those conversations, you're missing out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I actually had a conversation um, with Alexis Brooks DeVita um, that's going to have gone live by the time your interview here goes live, where we talked about how a lot of Black writers have kind of been lost in obscurity because they just couldn't get published, you know, in the 18th, 19th century, um, you know, especially if they were more genre type writers, you know, they had Um, multiple strikes against them at that point Mm -hmm. because there is you know very very specific formula about what you're supposed to write about and if you're writing outside of that formula you're going to have trouble getting published and if you aren't white you're going to have much more trouble getting published Mm -hmm. and so there's so much work out there by black writers that no one knows about and that no one is ever going to know about and for me slay was not just about hearing those stories about vampires from another perspective to me it was also a love letter to those people whose stories who have been lost to our ancestors who told us stories and passed them down but they were never written down Mm -hmm. and they're you know eventually going to be lost if no one writes them down if they're not lost already and that was one of the things that I really loved about it is that slay reading slay made me feel like you were honoring our ancestors with that anthology. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. (laughs) All right. So let's talk a little bit about Siren Song. You know, this is a short piece of fiction. Mm -hmm. um, And I'm curious to know how you came up with the premise for it and why you decided to make it such a short piece of fiction. So um, occasionally I write flash uh, stories and they tend to be horrific uh, in origin for some reason, but I, I've experienced that. And I think the French have a, a title for it, but I've experienced the desire. And I think some people have where you're just standing on the street corner and traffic is going by and you feel the compulsion to step into traffic, mm-hmm. right. Or to just dive right in, you right. know, 
um, with and it, it's a strong compulsion. And then you're not you're not thinking in terms of oh I'm going to die or the harm that can come to your person. It's just you should just do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so I, I thought that was pretty creepy. And it's like some I don't know if that's like our our innate lizard brain or what <laughs> yeah. is it that makes us want to or makes me in that instance want to just run out in the traffic. Um, and so I wrote about it <laughs> about that about that song about that lure and it is quite seductive yeah if you think there's no pain you know you you might have a brief moment of pain but there's no after right right so all the things and all the burdens that you're carrying and all the things that are dragging you down or or eroding your sense of happiness those things will be gone right you know trampled under trampled under the tires of, of various cars And it is a horrible thing. Like it's a horrible. Right. Right. (laughs) But I do think we all experience that. I think, you know, at at some point in our lives, you know, whether you suffer from mental illness or not, you know, you you're driving over a bridge and you think what it would be like to jump off of that bridge or, you know, Mm -hmm. walk into traffic or, you know, whatever the case may be, that thought just pops into our heads. And, you know, more often than not, you know, we, we shrug it off and say, no, I'm not doing that, you know, <laughs> but, but it is very much a siren song, especially for someone who is suffering, um, yeah. you know, and they have to fight that a little more than someone who is not suffering. And I think that marginalized people probably experience that sirens call, so to speak, a little more than non-marginalized people simply because our lives are that we have more burdens in our lives than the average person um the french call it the call from the void right Um, oh i think that's what the french call it it's if you translate into english i think it's call from the void Um, and it's that sense of i just need to put my burdens down and i can do that but the idea that some other thing is calling to you um Mm -hmm. from the void Right. It also makes me think about, uh, I'm a big Dark Tower fan. So I would think about Jake um, and Stephen King. So Dark Tower, Jake is is run over by a car and ends up in, in Midworld. And so it's a his death actually serves as a portal to another place, mm-hmm. um, to like an entirely different place. And so if you think about death as a gateway um, to to something else, to peace, to a different, to a, a, a another life, to start again. Um, it's kind of that siren song that kind of lures you into the depths. Um, and, and, and hope. I think some people actually believe that, you know, on the other side of death is a new beginning. And so that's also a lure of the, and you think about sirens themselves from Greek mythology, they, they lured uh, sailors to their deaths. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you think there's an actual call from the void? Like when we have those thoughts, do you think it's something from the void calling us home or calling us or enticing us to a place that we shouldn't be? Like, what oh, are yes. your thoughts about that? I think I believe that. Um, I believe it's a, I believe that, that I think and believe that uh, the call from the void is very much a, is not a positive um, because the situations where I've experienced it are not traditional avenues for death, right? They're not natural deaths. Right, right. And so it's not, um, those calls are not in any way following the script, <laughs> for lack right. of a better word. There, there are instances of, and I know that if I do step out in the traffic or if I do drive my car off this bridge or if I do take my car and run it into the oncoming lane, the pain and grief um, and all those negative emotions that's going to impact my family, my friends after that, that can't be, that can be good. It's got to be right. sinister and nefarious you know, in origin. And right. so, uh, yes, I absolutely believe that that's a, if you will, if you're a Christian, you might believe that's a double tempting you. Yes. Um, but the call from the void is definitely something that I suspect is it's nefarious <laughs> and not benevolent at all. So do you think it's like a sinister entity or do you think that it's something with our own brain chemistry that is 
trying to corrupt us somehow? What are your beliefs about that? If you believe in God, you must believe in a devil, right? Because the two don't exist without. um, So you can actually. So my mom would tell you that it's something sinister. Uh, It's an entity. It's a demon Mm -hmm. that is trying to entice you to your death. Um, I personally think it's something with our brains, um, some latent um, desire to, to, like I said, extinguish the emotional and sometimes physical pains that we're carrying. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think about a candle that's just burning too hot, this is a, an easy, quick way to extinguish it. Right. Um, and so I think on a subconscious level, it's a desire to, for peace. Right. So, in that vein, I suppose, because, you know, for me, that's something that's really scary is, you know, when your own brain and body is against you, I think that's one of the most frightening things that can happen, particularly when your brain is against you. Um, I'm curious to know what frightens you the most. Oh, like period? Period. (laughs) Being burned to death. Oh yeah. That'd be a terrible way to go for sure. That's, that's my <laughs> quickly followed by drowning. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That would, that, that would be the next one for me. Yeah. Like, yeah, both of the, both of those would be tough. I think um, there is um, a YouTube channel called ask a mortician and she yes. has this episode about like the most horrific ways to die. I cannot remember for the life of me what she said, because I watched it so long ago, the episode is pretty old, but now I'm going to have to go back and look at it and see like what an actual mortician says is like the worst way to go. And if it is indeed burning to death or drowning. Um, you watch horror movies where people just like step into the fire and they just like, they, and I'm like, how are you not screaming like your head off? Like I get, yeah. I touch like a, my skillet with my finger and, and it's just a small little tiny burn. It doesn't even blister. And I'm like howling for days. And I'm like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Burning is a different kind of pain. It's yeah. It's a little bit harder to ignore. I think it's a little bit more all consuming than, right? you know, if you were to break an ankle or something, you yeah, know, I just, wow, just that's my, that's my biggest fear. Like that's my, that's my greatest fear. So I'm really great about checking the, you know, our fire uh, smoke detectors and I'm really big about that and yeah yeah I think that's smart (laughs) (laughs) I think that's smart do you I wonder if um you have any fears that are outside of the norm you know a supernatural fear is there something that that really scares you that's otherworldly so I write a lot of murder mysteries and for me nothing scares me that's supernatural more than a man scares me because what I find mm-hmm. is that human beings are really monstrous. Yes. Yeah. And so they terrify me more than, you know, ghosts more than, and I've had that experience with ghosts too. Um, when I was a much younger child. <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> so, uh, um, I got to preface this with the fact that my, Parent, my grandma was a, she's an, uh, she was an apostolic uh, preacher. And, and so my mom is an apostolic evangelist. And so they, they both believe very much in demons and they both believe very much in, in spirits and angels. Um, and so when I was in my teens, um, I used to have a ghost come and hang out with me at night. It wow. used to freak me out. And I think that's why I can't, I don't sleep well at night now, but he would come and sit on my bed and you can see the indentation in my sheet. What did he look like? I think he was a boy from like our neighborhood because he wasn't really dressed in, and I think about it, he wasn't really in 80s clothes. They were a little bit older. Um, but I, I was raised in a housing project, which is, you know, if you think about those, those areas are often hot grounds for violence and, mm-hmm. and, and death, um, just because of, you know, poverty and low, not, not having access to resources and all the things that come with housing projects, right. idle time, you know, what have yeah. you. And so he, I think he was an older, I don't know him, like it wasn't a person I recognized, um, but he would sit on my bed 
at night and just and I would freak out like I would run to my mom's room my mom and dad's room and just like I couldn't sleep in my room for a while which is I, I got into the habit of staying up at night watching night tracks or MTV and falling asleep on the couch downstairs mm-hmm. like I could not sleep in my room <laughs> do you think he had sinister intentions or was it just a really scary thing for you because you knew he didn't belong there? Belong there. No, I, I don't think he was malevolent in any kind of way. I think he was just unable to like rest. Yeah. Um, looking back on it as an adult, I'm like, I just could not find peace. Right. Um, but, you know, my grandmother um, comes to visit me in my dreams. Like I, I'll wake up many times with tears on my cheeks from having like sat with my grandmother and, and talk to her. Yeah. So I definitely have those experiences where a friend of mine was shot um, when I was in my early twenties and he was my childhood friend, really close. Um, his best friend shot him in his stomach and he died. And I have ongoing um, dreams where he comes and visit and we talk and we go do things um and that brings you comfort it does um because i miss him yeah it's like i miss my nana so and so these are they real things or is just my brain like trying to soothe you know right uh, right. my grief possibly but i'd like to think of them as being real engagements yeah and i think that's the big question for people who have ghost experiences is is this something our brain manufactured to bring us peace or to bring us some sort of suffering, you know, for whatever reason, because it was bored or, you know, whatever, <laughs> or, you know, or is it an authentic thing? And I think, right. you know, for me, at least I, I don't think my brain manufactured um, some of my experiences. And I, I've talked about this, I think on the podcast before, but when I was a little girl, my grandfather died and, um, you know, I was maybe five years old. And, you know, of course my mom said that, you know, he'd gone to heaven and that, you know, we wouldn't see him again until we went to heaven too. you know, the things that you say to small children when someone significant in their life passes away. And, you know, he appears at the foot of my bed and I had a conversation with him. I don't remember any details about the conversation, I just remember him standing there and I remember us having a conversation telepathically. Like I didn't speak words. He didn't speak words, but we had a conversation and he was wearing a blue suit and my grandfather, he was a rancher. Um, He raised cattle. And so he was always wearing jeans and boots and a flannel shirt. Uh, Never saw that man in a suit (laughs) in my entire life up to that point, you know, would not have imagined that he would ever (laughs) wear a suit, you know, just, the idea of him wearing a suit was so strange, um, you know, compared to how I knew him. Um, but he was wearing a suit. And, you know, of course, I told my mom about it, you know, being, you know, really young child. I was like, oh, no, he's fine. You know, you know, because she told me he'd gone to heaven. We wouldn't see him until we had gone to heaven, too. But there he was. So he must not be dead. And this would make my mom really happy. Yep. And so I told her about it. And, you know, of course, she cried. And I didn't, you know, I didn't understand really why she was sad but she also seemed happy as well and so it was a very confusing moment for me but she went to the funeral and in his casket he was wearing the blue suit that I described to her and you know for me like how could my brain come up with that as a way to comfort me like why would my brain put him in a suit when the thing that would have comforted me more was him wearing what I always saw him in Um, and describing a blue suit, like instead of a black one or, you know, something, something like that, you know, it was just, it was an odd thing. And so I think, you know, for me, at least, like I absolutely believe in ghosts because of that experience and, you know, many others too, but that's one that I still haven't found a way to explain why I saw him in that suit. And, you know, I, I think the challenge for us is, when it's not so cut and dry, you know, when, the, when there's not something that that's external that you can say that this is a way that I can verify that my brain did not make this up. Um, you know, wondering if you really did talk to your grandmother, if you really did talk to your friend and does it even matter? Right. You know, because right. <laughs> either way, you know, brought you comfort. So at right. the end of the day, does it matter if it was a real experience or not? No. 
Um, but I think that I, it's important to recognize that too, that the brain is a very, <laughs> it's a very mysterious and fascinating organ, right? So yes. they, they don't have it all figured out quite yet. But I love the fact that it doesn't really matter. Um, but, and, and so it's, it's always when I'm not actually thinking about her too, or thinking about him too, that these, that they come to visit. Mm-hmm. And so it's always like spontaneous. Hey, how are you yeah. doing? It's yeah. not always a moment. So me personally having stress. So I'm not sure if it's like a subconscious thing, but I guess it doesn't really matter. It's like siren song. Is it really a legitimate call from the void or is it just your, your subconscious mind saying we're tired? Right. Either way, you've got to say no to it. Yep. And if you give in and say yes to it, the result is the same, whether it's an actual call from a void or if it was your brain manufacturing something. You know, it, it's kind of like that idea of, you know, people that have good intentions, but they end up hurting people. Like, yes, that's great that you had good intentions, but at the end of the day, people still got hurt. And right. that's something that you have to apologize for and try to reconcile for. And um, yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So let's talk about black horror. Who is your favorite black horror author of all time? Victor Lassau. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I really <laughs> love him. <laughs> if you had to recommend one book or one movie from any writer, director, producer um, of black horror, what, who would you, or what would you recommend? Now you're asking me to pick my favorite children. <laughs> <laughs> so I really love Lovecraft Country. Um, the book or the TV series? The TV series. Okay. And I, as, but it's like a tie between, between Lovecraft Country and Event Horizon, which isn't like a, a black um, horror, but for me, it was the first time seeing a black male be the protagonist and hero. Of yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. And it not be like a black exploitation type film, you know, yes. there, there was plenty of that, but you know, quote unquote right. mainstream was very different. It was different. And so I, I, and they were in space, which is also my other, like it's, it's, so it's a it's sci-fi horror. Yeah. And, and it was just, so it will always have like a very special place in my heart. Um, but I definitely really love the work uh, that Misha Green did with Lovecraft Country. What in particular did you love about Lovecraft Country? The love letter to Black women. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in almost every episode. Yes, yes. So we're going to actually be on a panel this Friday. So this interview will go live, you know, long after uh the panel is done and over, but we're on a panel this Friday where we're talking about Lovecraft Country. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited to talk to you about it now that I know that that was, um, that, that's one of your your favorites. It's, it's going to be yes. a great panel. I'm kind of mad that this isn't going to go live so that people can hear <laughs> about it before the fact. But, um, you know, maybe, maybe we can both post something on like Twitter, Instagram about <laughs> yeah. it, and, you know, trying to get some people to join and listen <laughs> to us nerd out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that way they'll at least have the opportunity you know won't be like hey we're gonna have this really great discussion a couple of days from now but you're listening to this you know 17 days (laughs) or whatever it ends up being you know like I I mean I would be mad if somebody was like oh we're gonna talk about this thing and you know by the time it actually goes live and you can listen to it like you can't listen to the thing they're talking about anymore like I'd be kind of upset so um I guess I'll have to do some promotion on Twitter and Facebook (laughs) about this. (laughs) So at least people will have the opportunity to have seen. Yes. No, I agree. I I really loved, um, and I loved every episode, which, which some people are like, ah, no, I I enjoyed every episode. And that's not to say that there aren't things that I can be critical about, but overall and just the body of the season, love it. Well, I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on Friday for sure. Like I'm, I was excited about it before just in general talking about it, but now I'm extremely excited about it. So can you tell us some ways that we can support you as a writer, as a publisher, as a human, what can we do to uplift you? 
So I do have a Patreon. Um, so that'd be great if you want to throw coins my way. I do give Patreons exclusive uh, on a monthly basis. So there's that. And um, what's can, the link for that? Uh, Nicole G. Kurtz. So patreon.com forward Nicole G. Kurtz. Okay. I'll make sure that goes in the show notes. What else? That's all. I'm also on Twitter at Nicole G. Kurtz. Um, you can purchase books at Mocha Memoirs Press. Um, we just released a new anthology to, on February 9th uh, for called Slice Girls. And it's our first um, like splatterpunk uh, horror with women, uh, center, centering women for Women in Horror Month. Mocha Memoirs has traditionally for the last 10 years published an anthology <clears throat> for Women in Horror Month every two years. And so in the same vein that Black Magic Women, mm-hmm. The Grotesserie, you know, Mocha's Dark Brew, in the same vein that these anthologies have come back, we've come out this year with uh, Slice Girls. So very nice. excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> We're pretty big on amplifying those marginalized voices and women in horror is very close to our heart because uh, I'm a woman and I write horror. Um, and so there's, <laughs> we try to do a lot this month in terms of like promotion and amplifying those other voices. So excellent. Um, check us out there. And the thing about Slice Girls is kind of interesting and new for us. So it's a charity anthology. So all proceeds will go to um, Planned Parenthood, which supports all women. I'm sorry, where did, where did the, where, what's Planned the charity? Parenthood. Planned Parenthood. Okay. Yep. Awesome. I'm really glad to hear that. I will make sure links to all of those are in the show notes for our listeners. Thank you again so much, Nicole, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and I'm really looking forward to our panel together on Friday. Yeah, me too. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with a new story. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.